Welcome to Talking Stack, MarTech Advisors' weekly news podcast. Join us as MarTech experts David Robb, Anand Talker, Amit Varshney, and editor Chitra Iyer talk about the things that matter this week in MarTech. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of The Talking Stack. Today, we have a very special guest, totally um, different from anything we've heard before on this show. Hopefully, we have Tom Fishman with us. Um, and unless you've been living under a rock, you obviously have heard of the Marketoonist. He is the founder and CEO and the brains behind Marketoonist and all those wonderful satirical laugh-out-loud moments that we get uh, in our inbox every week. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. And then we have, of course, David and Anand with us. So we're going to start with a discussion with Tom uh, about many different facets of uh, marketing, marketing technology, culture, people, and all those things that um, give him the material that he needs to uh, come up with the stuff he does. And after that, we have a report of the week that we're going to talk about, which is around the use of uh, customer data and personalization in e-commerce. So, Tom, one of the things you bring up quite often in your conversations, which is pain points, okay? You like, you've said before that you like to start with talking uh, or thinking about the pain points or even identifying the pain points, and that gives you the sort of starting point to start visualizing what you want to say in your cartoons. So um, we've heard of pain points when we go to business school, right? And, and apart from the observing and listening skills, obviously, that you need, what are your top tips to marketers to really be able to catch on to the pain points and the essence of the pain points, to go beyond the words or below the words? Yeah, great question. I, I kind of started thinking about this. I mean, originally, the cartoons were really an output of my own pain points. I was a marketer, and I just started drawing cartoons about the things I was grappling with and struggling with, and then other people started to relate to that and identify with it. And when I started doing this as a business and expanding it to where I'm focused on client work, um, I had to suddenly think about what would be funny in cartoons with clients. And so pain points became, a, in, in a way, it's a shorthand for empathy, having kind of shared empathy with an audience that you're trying to connect with. And I found that by finding humor in these shared pain points, the audience would laugh at situations they related to, and it gave me better perspective into what their their issues were. And ultimately, they, those are all issues that, that, that marketers can help address in some way, shape, or form. And so uh, as a cartoonist, I, I spent a lot of time ob- observing and thinking about what those pain points are. But I do think that's something that's available to any marketer just to get a better handle on pain points. And the best advice I would give is to try to get out of the ivory tower as much as possible. So often, particularly now in marketing, we now have more data than we've ever had before. We have almost too too much data. It's hard to see the forest through the trees. But I think sometimes um, we can complement all that data and give ourselves better perspective. If we get out of the ivory tower and actually watch our customers in the, in the live environments, um, the best example I've experienced in my own career as a marketer was when I was helping bring a consumer brand to the UK, and we had a pretty small team. We couldn't afford to have a, um, a, a customer service team. And so uh, this is when I was working for Method, the, the cleaning products company. We ended up printing – we needed a phone number on the side of the bottles for legal reasons. And so we just gave one of our office numbers as that number, and it was – this incredible experience where the, this phone would ring in the office and we would all take turns answering the phone. And I'd suddenly be in the middle of, you know, writing a PowerPoint deck about some aspect of a marketing plan. And then the next thing I know, I'm actually talking to a real consumer who has 
you know, trouble with the stain on those granite countertops. And it was completely inconvenient and messy and frustrating in some ways, but actually that's what the real customer interactions can sometimes be like. And I learned so much from those moments actually talking to live consumers because it didn't fit neatly in the boxes that I was uh, trained to think about from a, a, a quantitative point of view, but this messy qualitative interaction ended up giving me better insight. And so I think that there's room for all marketers to find some aspect of that to try to get out of the ivory tower and to and to, to and and to step away from your your desk. And then when you go back, it gives you better perspective. Yeah, speaking of silos, uh, you know, we have seen a lot of evolution in the marketing organizational structure. And we're also seeing all these new CXOs and the marketing structures getting very top heavy. There's chief digital officers, chief uh, customer experience officers, you know, of course, this whole marketing ops team, there's chief data officers and so on. And, you know, on the one hand, brands are talking about seamless, um, you know, totally channel or platform agnostic customer experience for their customers. But on the other hand, the marketing organization is itself so siloed. And there's digital marketers and then there's regular marketers. You know, what, what's the disconnect here? Why do you see that happening? Our actual end customers or our consumers don't see that dichotomy. They just see there's a brand I'm interacting with. And whether I see something in a you know print ad or something through digital channels, it's the same brand. So I think marketers will continue to evolve along that spectrum where it will ultimately be uh, be a little bit more uh, blended, but th we're, we're in this we're in this uh, awkward adolescence stage where there's going to be friction as we as we figure all of this out. And I think that as an individual marketers, it's good for us to to try to keep a pretty expansive view and to see uh, and to see it holistically, to see how what we do kind of ties into the whole, and not and 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 try not to be so focused on on a, a specific. Uh, a specific uh, niche uh, aspect within that. Um, when I started my marketing career, it was at General Mills, and a lot of the way we thought about marketing at General Mills is that marketing was a form of general management. Uh, as a as a brand manager, I had a P&L that looked across the whole business, and so I saw how all the different functional groups, even those not classically thought of as as marketing, ultimately helped build the brand. And some of our best you know, marketing tactics were not classically thought of as marketing tactics. Now, when I later worked at Method, a lot of the way the brand was built was through you know, beautiful industrial design. And we, we often talked about how we saw cutting steel as a media expense because we would cut steel in a mold and make a beautiful bottle. And that beautiful bottle effectively was a form of media that people would recognize. But a lot of times you don't think about something like the shape of your bottle as a as a form of marketing that can often get siloed out into a different functional group within an organization. But I think that the more in this kind of as we're moving into this world, marketers that will benefit the most are those that can see it really holistically and see about how all the different things that an organization does can be used as a as a lever in marketing. But it it, it requires thinking a little bit more holistically. I feel like it's marketers in a way kind of stepping up our own capabilities and what we're able to do and also also helping uh, really bring the whole organization along because we're ultimately best placed to understand where what the what the customer ultimately wants. And I think that's a, that's a really exciting place to be. I mean, it's a real place of leadership for 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 marketing, but it does require as was kind of as we started off with this, this idea of an evolution. We need to continue to evolve and expand our role, I think. But, uh, you know, realistically speaking, Tom, like everyone's not as, uh, you know, skilled as, as you may be at visually telling the story, right?
Exactly. So, yeah, I happen to come from the world of visuals. Just being a cartoonist, that was kind of how I was wired a bit, which has come in handy. But there, there are many, many ways to engage internally um, beyond, you know, I, I happen to work in cartoons, but there are lots of ways to connect. I mean, PowerPoint decks are the sort of the way we've often talked, you know, uh, within the organizations. And I feel like there, there is room for, for marketers to continue to evolve in how we use some of those classic tools in different ways. I mean, we, I, I grew up in, 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 uh, in you know, large environments where if you had an idea, you immediately had to create a 120 deck, uh, you know, slide deck PowerPoint presentation. And sometimes that would completely, you know, kill the essence of what you were trying to communicate because it was so chock full of, uh, you know, we, we were just sort of overwhelmed by brute force, the idea that we're trying to communicate. Um, I remember a few years ago, I, I, I met the, um, the head of design for BMW and he gave a presentation and his entire presentation was nothing but, but um, uh, hand-drawn stick figures and little hand-drawn quotes to help communicate his ideas. And he said that he always communicated that way because it was the only way he was sure he could be understood across the organization, whether he was talking to you know, the, the boardroom or the factory floor, and that, and that it was an antidote to so much of what he saw as you know, PowerPoint-itis. Where we where we where where marketers would often take ideas and and uh, and we kind of talk amongst ourselves and 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 the ideas therefore don't spread as widely across the organization as they otherwise could. Tom, where do where do marketers overthink this? Like, where, where do you see this most often, and how do they how should they be simplifying their messaging? Could you share like like a couple of tips on that front? Sure. Yeah, I, I see it most. I guess two two areas I see it the most. One. It uh, relates to the strategy kind of side of marketing. Um, so often we can end up with, you know, overly buzzword heavy uh, <laughs> uh, descriptions of what our marketing strategy is. And, and, and uh, there's, there's sometimes such an emphasis on making it, making it, you know, intelligent that it's not ultimately broadly understood. And then the other aspect I think often has to relate to how we think about the, the new technology that, that we want to bring into the organization, how we describe that technology and the shiny new object syndrome. And so I think that the, the more we can bring it down to a really simple way, how would you describe your marketing strategy in a way that could be understood by absolutely you know, everybody? How could you talk about a new piece of technology in, con in, the, in the context of where it fits into the overall business strategy and, and the, and the P&L so that it doesn't seem so foreign to everybody else in the organization? I feel like, that, I feel like th those are the two areas I see that market, the marketing community could improve potentially the most. And and last part part of that is so what's the extra seasoning to um, you know certainly get everybody on board? The, the extra mm -hmm. seasoning I would say is to feel like the extra organization really make it clear how what they do ultimately relates to to how the marketing comes through. So it's the other part, other people in the organization thinking of themselves as part of the overall customer experience. Um, one organization I was part of, uh, I ended up I ended up bringing this to a few other organizations too. Whenever we would recruit kind of new hires anywhere in the organization, we would, uh, as part of their application process, we would send them an actual customer letter or email that we'd receive uh, that was that was glowing and positive, and we would ask them, how will you personally uh, work in your job to make sure we continue to get letters like this? And it was really interesting to see the responses that would come back from somebody who works in accounting or supply chain management, uh, you know, how they think about their aspect that's not classically thought of as part of the customer experience, but how they thought personally what they did and how, that, how it could relate ultimately to customer experience. 
And it was a great reframing exercise because actually those things do matter quite a lot. But often when you're in that role, you, you think it's something totally separate. And so that, that I think could be the extra seasoning in a way, because when you, when you have an entire culture thinking about what am I going to do today on a personal level to impact customer experience in a positive way, um, that, that the cumulative effect of that is really significant. And it helps break down the barriers because later, when, later on when you, as a marketer, come up with an idea that requires you know, potentially a change in how different silos work with each other or create, you know, requires potentially, you know, ha having, having, uh, having to do something that hasn't been done before. If people are wired to think about, um, think about how they can positively impact customer experience wherever their functional area, they'll be more likely to make that try to come to life in a, in a, in a, in a power, in a, in a positive way, rather than what can often happen where, um, the marketing community has an idea, and then there's this friction between that idea and the rest of the organization adopting it. That's cool. Like, so reframing for relevancy. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's a great point, and it relates back to this tiny little big word called culture. This is this word is really difficult to understand. What are some, and it intrigues me also that, you have a background in B2C marketing, okay, consumer packaged goods and a lot of other B2C uh, brands, but you now focus your work on the B2B marketing space. What are some of the indicators of culture that leaders and marketers can actually uh, sort of um, keep their eyes open to, to understand or self-evaluate what their culture is? Or, or do you always need somebody from outside to come and tell you, here's an observation about what your culture is and here's what you need to fix? That's a great question. And it's a tricky question. Um, I, I get a chance to get exposure to a lot of companies through the clients that I work with. And then I also do a lot of speaking um, at internal events. So I get to know companies kind of on a short-term basis, basis through that. Um, there's, there's uh, the way that I've been thinking the most about culture lately has had to do with culture in relation to being comfortable with change because there's so much happening. Um, certain, certain cultures are, are more resistant to change uh, than others, and that's where that's been coming up more frequently. And lately, a lot of, a lot of what uh, my focus has been on the cartoon studio front has been working with companies and helping create cartoons as a, as a, as a vehicle to, to help surface some of the changes that companies want to make with their culture. So finding, you know, using cartoons to make fun of, you know, the status quo way of thinking so that they can talk about it and then think about how to, how to move forward. And um, I think that, you know, from a perspective of change, it's really interesting to me. I can, I can, I've gotten, gotten better at seeing where, what some companies are, are, have a more difficult time talking about what's really going on in the organization than others. A lot of it relates, a lot of, one of the things I look for is, in a, in a group dynamic, how comfortable people feel kind of talking and being open, uh, how comfortable people feel sharing their opinion before their managers as opposed to waiting to their manager giving an opinion, and then they give an opinion kind of supporting that. And so I feel like the, the biggest thing I look for is how comfortable people feel kind of sharing what's really going on. And so where, where a lot of the work that I've been doing is kind of using, using cartoons to highlight what's really going on, and it makes people feel more comfortable. If people can laugh together, oh, my gosh, I recognize that situation, then it can put them in a position to then say, why have we been doing that? We need to think about operating a little bit, a little bit differently. Um, some of that I've seen kind of bubble up from the bottom up, and some of it more come from the, the, the top down, where 
you know, a leader says, you know, we need to be more entrepreneurial. We need to be more agile, whatever that means. We need to, to inject different change into the culture. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, you know, it can be hard to do. And so we'll do a project kind of looking at where there's resistance in the culture that prevents that from happening. And then we kind of probe on it. And other times I see bottoms up things where uh, there's one, one company I, I've met, I met with recently where they're, they, for the last April Fool's, um, someone in the organization made this uh, piece of satire about the company culture and released it on April Fool's Day. And it got a lot of people thinking. They suddenly had permission because it was April Fool's Day to talk about some of these things, but it really woke people up. And uh, it, was, it was tricky because some people said, wow, they shouldn't even do that on April Fool's Day. It's, it's, a, it's a threat or it's not the vehicle you know, or people were taking offense to it. But other people were saying that's exactly the time to bring stuff up and these are really important things to talk about. So it can be kind of messy. And, uh, but that specific organization, they kind of went through that process and ultimately, uh, ultimately was, was, really, was really powerful and positive because it, ta- it exposed the elephant in the room. And, I, and that's, I think, now more than ever is a really important discipline for organizations to cultivate in their culture, that, that people in the organization feel comfortable calling out the elephant in the room. Because when you don't do that, then you get stuck in status quo way of thinking and you get passed by. When you do do that, you're open to change and evolve and adapt and start to, to experiment with many of the new things that we now have at our disposal. That's, anyway, that's one of the areas that I look at in terms, of, in terms of culture more recently is culture as it relates to our capacity to change. Where do, where do you see marketing organizations particularly build good culture as a company rapidly grows or changes? Like where's marketing's role in all of that within its own its own department or its own go-to-market group? Yeah, great question. I, I do gr- agree what you were saying. I mean, I, I feel like the, the idea of, of having foosball rooms, I mean, there's so many things that are tick box examples of how to big, build culture that, that are pretty shallow and ultimately don't have real meaning on how people engage with each other. Um, and I think it's more, what, you know, what's more, what ultimately culture runs a lot deeper than that. Um, I think that marketing can play a big role in it. The idea of, Brands ultimately branding from the inside out, making it feel com- like 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 marketers, you know, in a way how they, they you know they're they're in charge of helping helping introduce brands to consumers. I think they can also have a real influence on on the kind of the culture internally. There's a lot of pressure on young marketers today and not so young marketers as well about, uh, you know, making the right choices, uh, being able to measure what they do and demonstrate success, ROI, everything's transparent. You have to show value for what you're doing. And, uh, and there's a lot of pressure. It's not, it's not an easy place to be. Uh, sometimes I wonder what more we can do as a community to really support other marketers get through some of these tougher aspects of being in this challenging environment? Ultimately, we're in an interesting place because your question's framed for somebody new in marketing. But I feel like the other part of it is that marketing is an amazing uh, period of change. And I think anybody working in marketing, whether you've been doing it for 20, 30 years or you're just starting out, we, part of what we're committing to is constant learning and and uh, and evolving and and understanding new things we can't we can't get stuck in in in, uh, in how we how we did things before and so I, I feel like that constant learning uh, should apply to all of us and I feel like we need to continue to learn as 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 business people learn as as technologists learn as people understanding uh, the customer and insights 
Um, there, there are so many different aspects that we can continue to evolve and learn as, as marketers. But I think that the that if the, the the biggest difference I think is if we can frame what we do within in terms that the entire uh, business values. A lot of what we spoke about today uh, just now is going to come back in this discussion as well that we're going to do on uh, the report of the week segment, which is really uh, how leading retailers and direct-to-consumer brands are investing in digital. Okay, it's a it's a study that's just recently come out by Commerce Next. Some of the key findings first. Let me just preface for our listeners: 52% of respondents said unified customer data or a single view of the customer um, was something that they were still not very satisfied with in spite of their investments and almost the same number had similar levels of dissatisfaction in the personalization investments they made okay about 51 percent and we're talking about e-commerce and uh, pure uh, pure play d2c brands here all of which we know are disrupting the whole way retail is run today and in spite of these numbers uh, in spite of the low level of satisfaction with how unified customer data and personalization investments turned out, an astounding 65% are going to increase their budget in 2009 on uh, 2019 on CDPs. Yay, David! And 52% are increasing their investments on personalization technology. So obviously, there's an acknowledgement that um, you know that's important. We may not be getting it right yet, but that's important. Yes, yeah, so the big challenge really is because we're we're still m- most organizations are still struggling on how to. When we talk about personalization, we still are talking about one-way conversations. So we're orchestrating one-way conversations, and then we leave it up to the, you know, the bowels of marketing technology and the process to figure out how to go from that first communication or outreach all the way to you know actually closing or converting in some manner of speaking. So. I mean, I, I think what we're going to see is more, you know, as, as e-commerce is certainly driving a lot of um, changes in how we do personalization, generally speaking, there still has to be a listening component. There still has to be a relationship development component. And this is what CDPs can do or, you know, whether you have one or ten. Um, but the but the, none of that's going to matter if you're not able to if you're not if you're not building in a way to be able to hear what's what people are saying, what they're talking about, and then being able to engage with them because then you're just back to a shiny new object that you know does the same thing that you did before, and then you know what I always say about that, right? You're just magnifying you know <laughs> what you're doing with the technology at your hand. Um, so having the building that you know engagement and building that listening has to be a part of that. So. Um, Fine, you can have a single view of the customer, but what does it matter if you're not really spending time finding ways to get to know them better and um, hearing what they collectively yeah. are telling you? Yeah, right, well, it's, it's exactly what we were just talking about, and we we, we made that jump, right? We, we started talking about culture and customer experience and all, all the grand things, and then yep. we're jumping into personalization and how do we get customers to convert, right? That's Exactly. And they should not be separate. You shouldn't be throwing mm-hmm. the switch in your mind and today I have my customer six my customer hat on and tomorrow and now I have my marketer hat on and personalization for personalization's sake is a bad idea. And every survey we've seen it shows that. We two or three just in the last couple of weeks actually remaking the point. Everyone rediscovers it as if it was a point that hadn't been made before. If you actually ask consumers what they want, they don't want personalization, they want better service. And personalized service is better service. So, yeah, they want that data to be there. They want that data to be used to help them, not to market to them. The customers are absolutely clear on this. There's no confusion in the customer's mind 
about the distinction between personalization that gives them better service and personalization that is used to sell more advertising to them. Marketers are very confused on this point, but customers, they don't have any issue making that distinction. So we just kind of, in that way, we definitely have to listen a little more to the customers, think a little more like customers, and then use personalization and data, customer data appropriately. I find it really interesting. Whenever I go to a marketing conference and they, very often there's, someone shows the scene from that movie Minority Report where Tom Cruise is walking through a futuristic mall and all of these ads are, you know, reading his retinas and giving personalized ads directly given to him. And, you know, Oftentimes in marketing organizations, they'll show that and say, we're getting closer to this than ever. We can do this. And it's presented as a utopian view. And yet oftentimes when I see that same scene brought up in popular media and it's in, you know, from a customer's perspective, it's often painted in a very dystopian view. And so I feel like there is this, that's a kind of a reflection of the ivory tower that I feel like we need to, you know, as, as the point was just made, wear our customer hats more often and think about the tools that we have at our disposal you know, if we're wearing a customer hat, how can we use those tools in a way that can really be seen through the lens of utility rather than rather than through something that feels exploitative? Um, but it's in, that's part of the interesting stage that we're in is to figure out how best to use a lot of these tools. Surprising to me is that voice search and visual search, uh, two things that I thought are going to be really big, are at the bottom of the heap in terms of investments. You know, uh, I, I don't know, almost 60 percent are not going to be making any investments in voice and 50 percent are not going to be making any investment in visual search in the coming year. What do you make of that? Well, my take on that is that they are, you know, still experimental. They're, they're, they're compared to investing in, you know, core things like whether customer data or acquisition, uh, you know, those are, those, those are things you got to do, right? Uh, you know, just to run your company. Uh, you know, I, I can virtual reality, voice search. I can play with those, and that's where most people are are with them. Is that they're just sort of, you know, fiddling around, and it's an experimental thing. They know sooner or later it's going to be really important, but uh, that's not where they're going to put the bulk of their time or money today. So that's only surprising to those of us who kind of live in the bubble and are, are like like fascinated by tech and think everyone is equally fascinated. But again, those marketers, they got their day jobs. They want something that's going to make it a little easier to plan out their next ad campaign or, or you know, again, get that email copywritten or, or get those 2,000 pieces of content tagged that have to be tagged by next Friday. Voice search is pretty mainstream already. I'm surprised to see that, that number, but, okay, it, you know, marketers know better. Uh, so we'll see about that. Uh, you know, let, let's talk about the other really interesting finding in the report, the top barriers to achieving marketing goals, okay? And this should be of interest to our MarTech uh, brethren that listen to this show. The number one barrier to achieving marketing goals in 2018 was managing integrations of technology solutions across the stack, okay? That was number one. No surprises there, but, you know, it's now... Mm, this is not just a B2B company saying, a B2B tech company saying that integration of my stack is difficult. This is a B2C, D2C uh, company that uh, whose bread and butter is really using a lot of different stack components to communicate with customers omnichannel uh, saying that. The second one was executing quickly enough on marketing initiatives, okay? And the third one was... Um, uh, surprise, surprise, inability to get a unified view of the customer. So that was last year. 
And this year, um, uh, and, and also going back to our discussion with Tom before I get to this year, um, finding and retaining top talent and organizational structure misalignment. These two also made it to the top five of uh, barriers to achieving marketing goals. Uh, Tom, you know, why do you think finding and keeping the best talent in marketing is an issue or a challenge? I feel like, I mean, going back to the evolution point earlier, it's a big, it's a big case of change. That what we're looking for in the marketers we're trying to hire, it, it, the bar is continually, uh, continually being being raised. And I feel like it's part of the the state of flux that we're in that people are moving around a lot to get different different experiences. Um, so I think that that's going to continue to be to be a challenge. Uh, you know, I've seen some job specs come across that are looking for the proverbial, you know, unicorn. You know, somebody who has you know, all, you know, the entire suite of skills. And I feel like we're we're in a learning stage for for marketers. So those that will benefit the most as individual marketers are those who are learning the most and uh, adapting the, or, or, and developing those skills. And then and then, but it'll be I think continue to be a challenge for organizations to get talent who. Who can who can kind of look across that full spectrum? Yeah. And this year the challenges remain pretty much similar. They just shuffled up a bit, but the top five is still executing quickly enough on marketing initiatives. Uh, that's like basically speed to market. Uh, managing integrations remains number two. Um, I, I think that's a big opportunity for Martech vendors here, really, to work more closely with customers to help with integration. Um, and achieving profitability at scale, of course, um, that um, uh, should be and is top of mind for all marketers. It's interesting to know that uh, digital first D2C brands, okay, which have certainly shaken up the whole U.S. retail industry, win because of their relentless focus on data, technology, speed, agility, experimentation. Okay, all of that uh, is very much centered around the customer. So they they almost uh, try out new things with the customer, learn on the fly, fix things. Things, whether it's the data they're collecting or the technology they're using, the conversations they're happening, all of that, that they're having with customers. Um, and also the ability to and speed to break with things that are no longer working. This is like a problem with traditional marketers and even B2B marketers when you see that something's not working, but to just let it go. Well, I think we have to recognize that, that it's not that the D2C brands are, you know, just inherently smarter or quicker or more open to change. It's that they're newer businesses, they're simpler businesses because they're online only, typically. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. not, they're not dealing with retail stores. If, if you look at, there's some interesting within the report breakout between the answers that came from the direct-to-consumer companies versus the older brands. And... The biggest difference is that the older brands struggle with aging technology, and the, and the direct consumer brand, newer brands, really don't. They just don't have that legacy of technology. They don't have the organizational issues. They don't have a lot of just the old stuff to deal with, and that's what prevents the older companies from moving quickly and breaking things and making changes. It's not that they don't want to. It's not that the people there don't want to. It's not even that their cultures are necessarily such stodgy cultures, although no doubt they, they do tend to have uh, somewhat less agile cultures. It's that there's just real practical barriers, which is not an excuse, but it's something you have to look at and recognize.
uh, as far as Martech vendors are concerned, I think there, there is a big learning here from these two barriers that show up both years, uh, two years in a row. One is, you know, being able, uh, being able to execute on marketing initiatives fast enough, A, and B, not uh, being comfortable with the level of integration between the various components of the stack. These are huge, these I think are actually real opportunities for Martech vendors to act upon. I, I think uh, there's a real voice of customer there. It's not the technology integration that we that needs to be that's the problem. The problem is that we're not connecting the the customer's experience the way that they are expecting it or the way that they want it. To David's point about the service is what people really want. They want a seamless and easy service, and then you work backwards from there rather than building your stack and then trying to build it to uh, to something that you think you should have in the future. So um, integrations by marketing tech vendors. It's it's going to be a challenge for them because there are so many different point solutions. But um, I, you know, I can appreciate that that you will always have that problem. That's not something that will ever go away. Um, what you can do is prioritize what you think is important and can be lumped into a cloud versus something that's very specialized that you have a unique advantage and you want to be able to magnify that through technology that might be uh, might be able to uniquely give you that better intersection moving forward. Yeah, but yeah, don't be I, I too just... pessimistic about, you know, integration problems will never go away. I mean, internet, integration may never be totally, you know, mindless and seamless, but if you pick your technologies with integration in mind, you can, in fact, assemble a stack that integrates fairly easily. Mm -hmm. and, and, and some of the research, actually, that, that Chitra published uh, on her site from us, you know, one of the things that we saw that separated people who were happy with their results from the people who were less happy with their results was the ones who were better satisfied with their MarTech were focusing on integration, on internal integration, particularly as part of a selection criteria in their software. So, you know, you can do, you can focus on it and make it a little easier, even though, of course, it will never be entirely simple. Right, um, and of course, listeners can find a link to this report from Commerce Next in our show notes. Uh, but David, coming back to your point about not entirely simple, it reminds me of our next section, our News of the Week section. Okay, so Apple's recent announcements at the developer conference had several interesting highlights, and it's all and all those highlights and multiple. Uh, far more erudite analyses are available online as well. But for me, some of the announcements around privacy and customer data sharing uh, sort of highlighted the blurring lines between uh, big tech. You know, they are all, um, they all have different value propositions at the front end. But in fact, at the back end, the lines seem to be blurring between whether big tech like Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, Amazon, and now even Apple, what are they really? Are they software companies? Are they e-commerce companies? Are they social platforms? Are they marketing automation solutions? Are they data-driven marketing and advertising companies? Uh, I guess the question is really, what is it that they want to be? What they're really after and all these companies are after is the experience of, you know, from soup to nuts, that vertical integration they're looking for, right? We, we I think we talk repeatedly about Amazon, um, you know, becoming sort of a, a MarTech, potentially maybe even a MarTech company itself, but really literally becoming an, an ad, you know, advertising company uh, or media advertising company as a force. So we're, with Apple, it's, it's, they may be stumbling 
I guess, by the headlines into Facebook territory. But for them, it's always been something that they've tried to achieve in the first place. And now um, they're doing it the way that maybe Facebook should have considered doing uh, and managing customer privacy and managing data and certainly ensuring that that is used in a very positive, meaningful, and productive manner with that relationship with the consumers. Well, I don't think Apple has any particular interest in being a MarTech company. And it, it's not even clear they want to be a, a social network. Uh, they're certainly positioning what they're doing as a service to their customer to protect privacy and not let Facebook steal all your data, because if you log in with your Apple ID, uh, and in a couple of things that they announced in addition to that login was uh, uh, an option to have Apple sort of create uh, pseudo email addresses for you that could not be connected. So, so if you log into three different devices, you give them three different email addresses so the different app owners can't uh, reunite that data behind uh, your back, as it were. Um, and that would prevent, prevent Facebook from doing the same thing, since Facebook, at the end of the day, is an app. Uh, so, so, you know, so they're, they're, they're keeping the data away from the other guys, which is to their competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. How much they use that data for themselves, they're at least claiming that they use it vastly less than a Facebook or, or a Google would do. So they're protecting your privacy. Now, as you say, still they have it. Uh, absent legal restraints, there's nothing in particular to prevent them from changing their privacy policy tomorrow and saying, hey, you know, we were just, we were just kidding. You know, thanks a lot. Now we're going to do all this stuff with the data. But because they sell hardware, because they sell other services, they don't have the financial necessity to do that in a way that, uh, that Facebook does. And again, to the, one of the points you made last week as well, if, if they can make their money off of commerce, then they don't really have to make their money off of advertising. So they may have some other things in mind as ways to monetize that data in the future uh, that, that don't involve actually sharing your, your, your customer data with, with, other, with advertisers. So we'll, we'll see what they do. It's about brands wanting to collect the relationships between data points of an individual versus mm -hmm. a lot of the same data points about different individuals. There's more value in knowing the full graph of a particular individual. And even if you have that for fewer people, AI can work out the rest, I suppose, in terms of patterns and stuff. So that's really where the value is. Yeah, the community is the product. It's the competitive advantage. It's uh, who, whoever can own the community has, you know, has the ability to do whatever it needs to do to survive and adapt uh, accordingly. So. Speaking of community, I must remind our listeners to leave us a review on iTunes or a like on SoundCloud or a comment on social media or anything that works for you, but just to tell us that you're listening and um, we'd love to hear of your ideas and bring them into the show. So thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Tom. It's great to Thank you Tom. so much, Tom, for joining us and we hope to see you back on the show someday. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us. See you next week with our take on the big news in the MarTech world. Log into martechadvisor.com for more expert commentary on all things MarTech.